on Easter morning in the year 387, uh, a man named Augustine was baptized after putting his faith in Jesus Christ. The months leading up to Augustine's baptism were marked by a dramatic change in his life. Augustine was born in what was then Roman North Africa, what is now Algeria. His life as a young man was characterized by partying, uh, promiscuity, and the pursuit of life's most important question. What is my purpose? What is the purpose of life? Augustine would follow various philosophers only to become disillusioned by what they were teaching. He went on to be an instructor in rhetoric in Milan, Italy, and while in Milan, came into contact with the faithful preaching of the Bishop of Milan named Ambrose. And he was curious, he would sit under Bishop Ambrose's preaching Sunday in, Sunday out. It created a curiosity in him, yet he was content to continue in his life of carousing. And then in the year 386, Augustine and his friend Olypius were spending some time outdoors in what we would consider a local park, and he heard a child's voice say, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. He thought it was some children's game, though he'd never heard of this game before. And then suddenly it dawned on him, maybe this is a message for me. Pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. And he thought to himself, maybe this is God's message for me. So he looked hard to find the scripture. And he found a Bible and he played a little Bible roulette, opening the pages, putting his finger down on the first page that he could come into contact with. And where did he land? But Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which read, do not live in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Uh, reading this Scripture, Augustine, as he writes in his confessions, his, his testimony says, I felt as though my heart were flooded with light and with love. He turned from his life of sin and trusted in Christ, his newfound Savior. Augustine's life had been dramatically transformed by the resurrected Lord. You see, Easter is all about the redeeming power of the resurrected Lord. All those who trust in Christ in his death and his resurrection are redeemed. Our lives are radically transformed from sin to salvation, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from guilt to grace. This is beautiful redemption through the power of the resurrected Lord. I want to invite you to Explore with me this power of the resurrected Lord through the Bible this morning. Let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the Bibles we provided on your chairs. You can find that on page 961. Page 961. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you a copy in the lobby. There are bookcases there. You'll find a bookcase with hardback black Bibles. Please take one. If a friend needs one, give them, to want, give them one as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. From this passage, I want to offer to you four charges, four imperatives. And the first is this, remember the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. You don't have to read far into the letter of 1 Corinthians to realize that this is a church that has lots of problems. Paul traveled to Corinth and planted the church in roughly 51 AD. He spent about 18 months in Corinth doing the work of church planting. He then transitioned out and headed east to Ephesus where he spent the next three years. And while in Ephesus doing ministry there, he receives a troubling report about what's going on in Corinth. They are a mess in multiple fronts, morally, theologically, on a unity standpoint. They're a mess. This work that he poured into for 18 months. Have you ever poured your heart into a project and then transitioned out of it only to find it unravels after you leave? This is what's going on. This church is a mess. They're a divided people. They are an immoral people. They are a theologically confused people. And so in this letter, Paul addresses each of these issues. He addresses issues of immorality, issues of disunity, issues of theological unorthodoxy. This church is a messy community in need of much grace. And perhaps you're new to what goes on within a local church. Don't be surprised when you encounter real issues in local churches. Because local churches are made up of real people with real problems who stand in need of a real savior. And the good news is we have one and his name is Jesus and he has power to make sense of our mess. Local churches are messy communities of grace and you're going to fit right in. The issue that takes center stage in 1 Corinthians 15 is a theological one. Some in the Corinthian church have begun to doubt and even deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says a little bit later in chapter 15. Look at verse 12 with me. And Paul writes, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection is the cornerstone of our salvation. Without the resurrection, our salvation crumbles. There's no hope of redemption in our lives. Salvation is impossible. Sin has, in fact, won. Notice what Paul concludes in verse 17, chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still 
in your sins. Notice what's at stake if there is no resurrection. If we doubt and deny it, your faith is futile. It's useless. We're believing a big hoax. So this is a big problem within the Corinthian community with far-reaching ramifications, eternal ramifications. Some in the Corinthian church have loosened their grip on the resurrection. And what Paul seeks to do is tighten that grip back up. Well, how does he seek to tighten their grip on the resurrection? By reminding them of it, by re-preaching it to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, notice what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, brothers is a collective term which refers to men and women in a local church. Uh, I would remind all of you collectively of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Just three years prior, Paul had spent 18 months preaching the good news of the gospel. And the good news, his content is right there in three and four. He's reminding them of the very message that they heard first from him. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the good news of the gospel that Paul faithfully preached to his Corinthian friends. And notice this good news all happened according to plan. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection was all according to plan. All foretold some 800 years prior to its happening in the Old Testament prophets. Namely, the prophet Isaiah. Here's a helpful assignment that you could do this week. Open your Bible and open to Isaiah 53. Keep your finger in Isaiah 53 and then turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Flip back and forth and see how the content of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See how that all is foretold in Isaiah 53. It's all there, spoken of, forecasted some 800 years before it ever happened. Here's the cliff note version. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Then in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ spoken of, the Messiah, the suffering servant, 800 years before he would be incarnate and do the work of death and resurrection. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah spoke of it. Paul says Christ was buried. It's in Isaiah 53, verse 9. Isaiah says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We know that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. Well, what about him being raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures? Where in Isaiah 53 is there a forecast of his resurrection? Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, He bore the sins of many. There it is. Him shouldering our sin. Forecast of his death on the cross. And then he makes intercession for the transgressors. That verb makes intercession is present tense. How does one who bear the sin of others, past tense, dies on the cross, then present tense, live to make intercession for them? That one who died, who bore the sins of many, had to come alive again to make intercession for them. 
All of it's in Isaiah 53. Jesus' death, his burial, and his forecasted resurrection is there. This dead man has come alive again. And there and now, he lives to make intercession for his people. Do you realize that Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, praying for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, he's praying for you that your heart would be opened to the gospel. If you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus lives to make intercession for you. So when you're tempted to sin, to speak harshly, to look lustfully, to lie with your tongue, whatever it is that you do, your deeds of unrighteousness, Jesus prays in the hour of temptation that you would bear up underneath it. That you would withstand temptation. He lives to make intercession for you. The resurrected Lord is alive and praying for you and me. This is the miracle of the message of Easter. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own wicked way. We reject the good command of our good father that we just sung of. He's a good, good father. But we are prone to wander from that good father, to distrust his command as overbearing, as not good for us, that he's withholding something from us. We are bent in going our own way. And yet God in his patience and his long suffering has done something for us in the midst of our rebellion and our obstinance, our stubbornness. He sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to be our substitute on the cross. You see, Jesus died the death that we deserve. Our sin has a consequence. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty that has to be paid. And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus pays it for us. Imagine a long line, like one that you see at Disney World. This is a line that you do not want to be in, though. This is a line awaiting God's judgment, and all of humanity is standing in it, awaiting God's judgment for their sin. And then suddenly, one who is utterly merciful and perfect steps in front of you in the line. He cuts in line. The only time when cutting's okay, Jesus steps in line. He bears the full outpouring of God's wrath for you. That's substitution. Somebody steps in your stead, in our place, condemned, Christ stood. That's substitution. He's borne our penalty. He dies on a cross, but he doesn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now prays for us. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. You just receive it by faith saying, I trust you, O Lord, that you died for me and you rose again. This is the good news of the gospel, the best message that will ever fall upon your ears. It's made available to you this morning. It wouldn't be good news, however, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. So the fact that some people in the Corinthian church have loosened their grip on the resurrection is alarming, to say the least. They're in a precarious position. And Paul's concerned about their eternal destiny. And notice what he says in verse 2. This gospel which I preach to you is the means by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believed in vain. These are some hard words. There's a kind of belief that is in vain, a partial belief, a partial belief in 
what Christ has done and who Christ is. And he's warning against this. Beware just the mental assent to these truths without a heart embrace. A superficial belief that does not hold fast to the fullness of the gospel. It's a full belief that we need in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus that empowers us to the end. Enables us to persevere to the end. That's what he's encouraging. Full belief that endures unto the end. So what does Paul do? He re-preaches the gospel to them. He reminds them of the message that he wants delivered to them. He, rem he reminds them of the resurrection. What might cause a person to lose their grip on the resurrection? What caused the Corinthians likely to lose their grip was the wisdom of their age intellectualism of their age. It's not uncommon to what we face today. Belief in a bodily resurrection in first century Corinth was ridiculous. Foolishness. The Corinthian philosophers had a dualism between the spirit and the body. And the goal was to alleviate or to relieve the spirit from the imprisonment of the body the the spirit was superior to the the body and so, so there's this dualism and so the fact that christ would be resurrected in a physical body was scandalous to the greek mind foolishness and so by believing in it you run you ran the risk of being foolish in the eyes of your co-workers your countrymen to struggle for them, there was cost involved. How would I be perceived by the astute intellectuals of my day in Corinth? Friends, in our culture, belief in a bodily resurrection can be foolish as well. Belief in that kind of miracle, that's just a fairy tale. How are you tempted to lose your grip on the reality of the resurrection because of intellectual pressure, cultural pressure? First, Paul urges his readers to remember the resurrection. Second, he urges his readers to trust in the reliability of the resurrection. Trust in the reliability of the resurrection. This resurrection of Jesus is not wishful thinking. It's not a fairy tale. It's not fiction. It's historical fact. And this is what Paul is pointing to in verses 4 through 8. He says, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the disciples, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Four times the verb, he appeared. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared. What is Paul doing? What is Paul emphasizing? The fact that Jesus, who is dead and buried, is now alive and well. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared to multiple people. To Peter, to more than 500 people in a crowd in one setting. To James, and then lastly to Paul on the road to Damascus. We see this in Acts chapter 9. Why does Paul go to such great lengths to list out the post-death appearances of the Lord Jesus. 
to convince these people of the reliability of the resurrection. He's pointing to eyewitnesses over and over and over again. Your faith in Christ, in his death and resurrection, is based upon eyewitness testimony. People saw the resurrected Lord. Eyewitness testimony carries credibility, especially when it's observed by multiple witnesses whose testimonies corroborate. They jive together. They're not contradictory. They jive together. Many people saw the resurrected Lord. The one who was dead and buried became alive and well, and people could place their fingers in the divots in his hand and his feet where the nails were driven. They could see. And many of these eyewitnesses at the time of this writing, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around 55-ish AD. Jesus was resurrected somewhere between 30, 33 AD, right? So we're talking 22 years-ish. The people who saw Jesus were still alive. And Paul's saying, go talk to them. Go speak to these people. They're still alive, many of them. Some have died, some have fallen asleep, but many of them are there. Go talk to them. He was seen. And people passed on the message of his life after death. They passed it on. And other people wrote it down. The gospel writers compiled what eyewitnesses saw. They wrote it down and they passed it along to us in the gospel accounts. That's what we have today in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospels rest on the reliability of eyewitness testimony. Consider the court of law. People are acquitted or condemned, convicted based on credible, consistent eyewitnesses whose testimonies corroborate. What we know about Jesus has been passed on by credible eyewitnesses. How do you know that George Washington served as the first president of the United States. You didn't see him, and I didn't see him, but someone saw him. You didn't hear him, I didn't hear him, but someone heard him. 250 years ago, somebody heard him, somebody saw it, and they wrote down what they saw and heard, and they passed it on to the next generation, who passed it on to the next generation. This is how history is recorded. Somebody sees, eyewitnesses see and hear, they write it down, and they pass it on. Pass it on for the next generation. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone heard and saw, shared it. Someone wrote it down. It was compiled and written in the Gospels for us. Maybe you're here today and you are skeptical of the resurrection. Friend, we're glad that you're here. We're delighted that you would come to worship with us. This is a place where you can come and ask hard questions of the Bible and of the Christian faith. That's why our church is designed. That's why our church exists. Come, explore the claims of Christianity. Ask good and hard questions. We want to help equip you and help answer those questions. We have resources that we would love to give you. Two books that I'd recommend as you walk out. Just take them. Greg, Greg Gilbert wrote, Who is Jesus and Why Trust the Bible? Both of them deal with the resurrection question. Who is Jesus? Why trust the Bible? Who is Jesus is red? Why trust the Bible is white? Just take them on your way out. We'll get more. There's some more in the office. We'd love to help shepherd you along your own skepticism. It's okay to be skeptical, but continue to explore the questions of Christianity. Four imperatives, four charges. Remember the resurrection. Trust in the reliability of the resurrection. Number three, receive the redeeming power of the resurrection. Receive the redeeming power of the resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in verses 8 through 10. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The life of Paul is a prime example of the power of the resurrected Lord to transform a sinner. And not just a sinner, but a terrorist. Paul terrorized the early church. He drugged men and women, believers, just like you are now, to prison. Had them executed, gave his approval of execution. The power of the resurrected Lord to, to transform a terrorist. This is the power of Christ, the risen Lord. You're never too far gone. He never looks at you and says, you're beyond the scope of my salvation. He never looks at a person and says, you know what? She, it's 50-50 whether I can transform her or not. He looks and he sees the most lost among humanity and he finds them. This is the power of the resurrected Lord. You are never too far gone. He never looks at you and says, I can't do anything with you. The redeeming power of Jesus reaches the farthest corners of humanity. Paul, who was formerly a terrorizer of the church, is transformed. One who sought to tear the church down was transformed to one who builds the church up. Miraculous story of reversal. Paul hated all things Jesus. He hated his word. He hated his people. He hated his church. And then one day, everything changed. Everything changed. On the road to Damascus, on the, on the road to haul Christians out and have them executed, he met the resurrected Lord and he dropped to his face and was blinded. He came to repent and believe in that risen Lord and his life would never be the same. He went from tearing down the church to building up the church. Only Jesus can do that kind of reversal. This is the power of the resurrected Lord. Jesus broke into Paul's existence, his evil existence, and he brought about something beautiful. This is what Jesus does. He has power to transform even a terrorist. Well, there's, other, there's others in this passage who are transformed. 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Jesus appeared to Cephas. Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. This is Peter. In Paul, Jesus demonstrated his power to transform a terrorist. And in Peter, Jesus demonstrates his power to transform a failure. Peter, a colossal failure. The spokesman of the disciple, of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Like he was the top disciple. Like had inner, inner eyes on the work of Jesus. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Oh, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And what does Peter say? In confidence, he says, though all may fall away, I will stand. And what happens before the rooster crows twice that night? He had denied his Lord three times. He was in a puddle on the floor, devastated because he denied his precious Lord. And notice the post-resurrection appearances. Jesus, the ultimate shepherd, goes after Peter. In fact, he says to the women, go tell the other disciples and tell Peter. Why is he so specific? Because Peter was in a puddle on the floor, wallowing in his defeat, in his failure. And Jesus lifts him up out of that place of failure. He has power to transform the greatest of failures. Your failure is not a barrier to you and Jesus. 
he's shown himself, shown his power to transform a failure. He can handle your failure. There's no sin so deep that God's grace isn't deeper still. The risen Lord will forgive your failure. The power of Jesus to transform a terrorist. The power of Jesus to transform a failure. There's another one in this passage. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's transformed too. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then Jesus appeared to James. During his three years of public ministry, do you know how Jesus' family viewed him? They thought he was off his rocker. They thought he was crazy. And they did what they could to seize him, to keep him under wraps from embarrassing the family. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus is doing ministry in Galilee in his hometown. And notice when Jesus' family hears what he's doing, Mark 3, 21, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Picture James, the brother of Jesus, in embarrassment, peeking around the corner, seeing Jesus teaching, Jesus, get back in the house. You're embarrassing the family in, in panic and embarrassment. He, he's trying to seize Jesus. You're embarrassing the family. That's James, a skeptic, a doubter of Jesus. After the resurrection, James is transformed from a skeptic of Jesus to a servant of Jesus. He's now pastoring the church in Jerusalem. This is the redeeming power of the resurrected Lord. He has power to transform a terrorist. He has power to transform a failure. He has power to transform a skeptic. They're all listed there in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the power of Jesus. Where do you fall? What hindrances in your own life serve as blockades before you and Jesus? What is within your own heart? The wrongs you've done. The failures that shame you. The fears that paralyze you. The skepticism that hardens you. What is it? You're not too far gone. Trust in the redeeming power of the resurrected Lord. Do you believe that Jesus can change you where you are right now? What sin has a hold of you? Do you believe that Jesus can change you? Friend, you are one request away from the redeeming power of the resurrected Lord. One request away. Remember the resurrection. Trust in the reliability of the resurrection. Receive the redeeming power of the resurrection. Fourthly and finally, relay the message of the resurrection. Relay the message of the resurrection. There's this consistent emphasis in the passage of passing on the gospel message. Relaying the gospel message. Delivering to someone what you first received. We see this, verse 1. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. This is a relaying, a sharing of the gospel from one to another. And then verse 3, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Paul is giving what he first was given. And then verse 11, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is a sharing, a preaching of the gospel message. For 2,000 years the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been conveyed, it's been relayed from one to another. One who has been given something then shares it with another person to receive it. It's the chain of transmission of the gospel. And we have the privilege of being a part of it. If you've received it, your calling is to relay it, to give it to somebody else. 
This is how people were changed. One conversation, one relationship, one act of grace at a time. One conversation, one relationship, one act of grace at a time. A coworker, a neighbor, a family member, a classmate, on a road, at a coffee shop, over a dinner table, over lunch, it doesn't matter. One conversation, one act of grace at a time. The chain of transmission, and we're a part of it. Relay the message of the gospel. God has prepared people for you to share with. We all have spheres of influence that we operate in. And if you're a Christian, you're called to be part of the chain of transmission. Just relay the gospel. There's power in the message. Not in the messenger. Sometimes we load our shoulders with too much responsibility. We just need to relay it. Just pass the baton. There's power in the message to redeem sinners. I started this sermon with a story about Augustine, a man who encountered the redeeming power of the resurrected Lord. Augustine would later go on to write this prayer as he remembered his own salvation. He wrote this prayer. He said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Consider the people whom God has placed in your path. Friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, family members, make no mistake. Their hearts will be restless until they find their rest in Christ. That's the reality. And I'm going to encourage you as a friend and as a pastor to invest in these people, to love these people and to serve them. And the way that you will invest in them best and serve them best and love them best is by relaying the gospel to them. Because only in Christ can their restless hearts find true rest. And maybe you're here this morning, and as you look inside your own soul, you see a restlessness, an anxious striving. Something is not right, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. Your heart will be restless until you find your rest in Christ. This good news of the gospel is for you. Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried in a tomb, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the message of the gospel. It is for you. Would you believe in this resurrected Lord who loves you and who can redeem you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to live the life that we failed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to rise victorious, conquering our sin and death. Lord, we pray that you would empower us as a local church to relay the message of the gospel to hold it out faithfully, to love people well by sharing this good news with them. Lord, we acknowledge that our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. And I pray for some who are restless even now, Lord, that they would find true grace and redemption by looking to you, your son. We thank you for uh, the hope that we have in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.